two men. I gave a wry grin and wondered if maybe McGee was right. Maybe they didn't get many strangers through here after all. We turned our horses into the rail in front of Milford's saloon and dismounted. Folks seemed suddenly scarce around the saloon. A tightness pulled at my shoulders as a thumbnail dragged up my spine. Business appears to have fallen off, I said. Folks act in a mite peculiar in this here calico lace town cap. They do seem right nervous about something. McGee smirked. I get this feeling it's you and me they're shying from. We ever been here before? No. I'd already asked myself that question. We'd stopped counting towns years ago, but even that was a long time after McGee and I had started riding together. McGee had been my first sergeant during the war. After Lee handed his sword over to Grant in 65, I returned to Ohio, and McGee just tagged along with me. I never got around to asking why, and he never volunteered a reason. He had no family, no home. That was reason enough for some men after four years of killing. I was about the only family he had, so we rode together. He stayed with me during those hard times after the war, as I cleared up all the loose ends of a shattered life. When I'd finished and had sold off what was left of the farm, he swung up onto his horse beside me and peered long and sadly at the charred remains that had once been Betty's and my home. "'Ain't much left here for you, Cap,' he had said. I could only shake my head. I'd already cried out all the tears I had inside me. Got any plans? He knew I didn't. How could anyone have plans when their whole life lay buried in cold graves? I had plans once. Large, grand plans, like most young men rolling up their sleeves, eager to tackle a bold world with a beautiful wife at their side and newborn twins in their arms. But then came the war and other things, things that play hell with a man's life. Betty and the twins were my life. Now they were gone, and I knew it was going to take a good long time to get things straightened out again, a good long time to forget. No, no plans. I hear there's a big empty country over beyond the Mississippi, just begging for men to fill her up. So we started west. No place in particular, any place would do, any place where I could put the past far behind me. And all the while, McGee rode at my side. I never asked why. I was grateful for the company, although I don't think I ever told him so. He just seemed to know. That had been well over ten years ago, more than a decade since I had laid my life in those graves. A dozen years and too many jobs and lonely towns between to count. And as I thought on it now, standing there in front of Milford's saloon in this little mountain town of Calico Lace, I still had no plans for my life. I'm beginning to think maybe we should take that drink and then move on a piece, huh? I'm starting to feel like that time we'd come on to that Comanche camp down on the Purgatory Gap. McGee's words stirred me from my thoughts. McGee was a short, husky fellow, strong as a mule, and hardly ever spooked. 
He had pale blue eyes, ruddy skin, and a tangle of red hair like a ball of rusty bailing wire that someone had tried to squeeze into the brim of a tattered Stetson. This isn't the first town that hasn't sent out a brass band to welcome us, I said, glancing at the lengthening shadows reaching across the street to where a lowering sun still warmed the building there and glinted off its wavy panes of window glass. It'll be dark in another hour, and I don't see any good reason to spend one more night on hard ground when right up the street a ways is a place that lets rooms for two bits. McGee glanced at the sign, then cast an eye about the town. Maybe you're right. It's just that folks appear so jittery. And jittery folks makes me jittery, you know. I have a troubling feeling about this place, Cap. McGee had a way of sniffing out trouble before it arrived. And if I'd been half as smart as I'd like to give myself credit, we'd have put calico...